aka Strangely Literal. And I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of Ibis. Gods are great, but people are greater. For it is in their hearts the gods are born, and to their hearts that they return. Now you may be seated. This week we watched American Gods episode 5, Lemon Scented You. So what did you think? Last week I went to the top of the mountain. I feel like I can't say that every episode is the best episode. This is like the problem that critics have, right? This is why they poop on everything. <laughs> I think this episode was really good. I really like the guest stars that we get with uh, Mr. World, some of the police. Uh, I love the way that the show is able to bounce from the drama of Shadow and Laura to the comedy parts with Mad Sweeney and the weird horror in the police precinct. So there's a lot of really good stuff here. What did you think? I also loved it. I thought there was really great writing and performances, basically from start to finish. And the music was super fantastic again this week. Uh, They used it to enhance the narrative really well. Um, But before we dig into the show, let's talk about this week's creators. This week's director is Vincenzo Natale. He's directed episodes of Orphan Black, Hannibal, and Westworld. Brian Fuller and Michael Green maintain their absolute control over the writing. Although one thing I noticed when I was going back to check is that they swap the order of their names on each episode for the writing credits. And so I'm not sure if that is like reflecting anything about the writing process or if they're just taking turns being listed first to be like nice to each other. Um. (laughs) Let's recap what happened this week. Once upon a time, Atsula's tribe crossed the land bridge to America, made a truce with its god, and forgot their own. In the present, Shadow and Laura struggle to reconnect. The police arrest Mr. Wednesday and Shadow and take them to the precinct. Meanwhile, the technical boy is warned by media that their master, Mr. World, wants him to apologize to Shadow. Shadow discovers that his enemies are powerful, but when he tries to warn Wednesday, they hear an attack. Meanwhile, Mad Sweeney finds Laura, but can only get his coin back if she returns it of her own free will. Back at the precinct, Media introduces Shadow to Mr. World. He offers Wednesday a place among the new gods. After Wednesday refuses, he and Shadow leave the demolished precinct dead police officers and bizarre creatures to be explained by Mr. World and media any way they want. So coming off of last week's very Laura-centric episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about Laura again this week, especially since she plays a central role in two of the three main sections of this week's episode. Um, So in my head, I kind of broke down this week's episode into three parts. Shadow and Laura, Laura and Sweeney, and then Shadow and Wednesday at the police station. Um, And so for Shadow and Laura being reunited, first of all, I thought that this was a really hard scene to write just because of structurally how it's set up. We, the audience, already know everything because we've been following these two characters individually. And now that they're meeting again, 
they have to sort of fill each other in on everything that's been happening to them. And so it's a hard thing to do without just rehashing a bunch of exposition in a boring way that doesn't give the reader anything new. And actually, Mm -hmm. you'll notice that a lot of books and TV shows solve that problem by doing basically just a fade to black and having that conversation occur off screen so they don't have to bother the audience with it. But I thought they actually did a really good job of that here. First of all, the dynamic between her and Shadow is just really fun and interesting. And the acting makes that writing even better. And second of all, we actually do learn a couple new things that we didn't already know. So first, we find out that Laura was actually already thinking about having sex with Robbie before her cat died. Um, I liked the part where she was talking about, you know, I wasn't, and then I was, and then I wasn't. (laughs) And then I felt really great about that, and then the cat died. (laughs) And so I think that sort of, like... Uh, sheds a little bit of uh, new light on the scene that we saw in episode four between her and Robbie, that it wasn't really a decision in the moment. It was something that she had been kind of wrestling with before then. And then the other thing that I thought was really interesting that we learned is that she actually doesn't remember what happened with her and Anubis when she was dead or first dead and not reanimated, which I think is kind of cool from a world building perspective because... You know, we know that Laura has come back to her body and she's been reanimated, but apparently there are some things that sort of like can't transgress that boundary between death and life. And I think that's kind of interesting. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think she does definitely remember Anubis because they meet and he like tells her that, hey, I'm going to get you one day. Like when when this is all over. Well, he says mm-hmm. he says that he remembers her, but she doesn't give any real indication that she has clear memories of what happened. And she has like some familiarity with him, but she doesn't make any specific reference to what happened between them. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, because um, yeah, she definitely explicitly says she doesn't remember. And then yeah, yeah it's interesting that that it's not carrying over in. Maybe that has something to do with why she's so different now. Mm-hmm. We'll have to see with the magic. I know that I, I rewatched episode four after I had seen this, and I was kind of watching for where she's talking about, you know, she wanted to have sex with Robbie. And there are a couple of scenes where she's like, there's one in particular where she's kind of like playing with some glue while Audrey is like doing a craft thing and... Robbie is like changing a light bulb in the other room and she's just kind of like checking him out and looking back and forth between Audrey and Robbie and just being kind of pensive. And I was like, oh, that's like what's going on there. Like I could read more into that scene. It's kind of like you said last episode where you can watch the show over and then you can kind of see everything that's being laid down in advance. Uh, It's nice that Mm -hmm. they've like built in all these details. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm also curious what you thought about the exchange between them when she asks if he's still her puppy and he says no. So I think I mentioned last time that I've been rereading the book and this was in the book, like pretty much this whole conversation is in the book. This is almost verbatim. And then we go inside of Shadow's head and like play out, you know, like, do I love her? Am I her puppy? And then he says no. 
he doesn't seem happy about it, right? Like, I, I really liked that they adapted it this way and that the way that Ricky Whittle plays it, we can feel like the struggle inside of him. I feel like he's kind of yeah. protecting his dignity. You know, like he he wants <laughs> to say, yes, I'm still your puppy, but he's like, you, I, you can't keep treating me like this. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I don't think he's quite rejecting her fully mm-hmm. but i think he's saying that it's not gonna be like it used to be exactly you know yep. like you're dead and we're in some deep shit you know i'm not your puppy anymore but we maybe are still involved and tangled up with each other in some way and i think he definitely still cares about her yeah even if he's throwing pillows at her he still loves her yeah <laughs> Oh, that was so good. That's the best. Yeah, I love that part. He, yeah, they, he definitely cares about her. I love what Emily Browning's doing. You can tell she feels different, and the love that she feels for him makes her so vulnerable to rejection from him. And so she's so much yeah. more heartbroken than she ever would have been before she died. And it's really fantastic. Even though she's like not the most sympathetic character, like you, you feel bad. For or I felt bad for her when he says, "No, I'm not your puppy." It's just like, ugh, that's yeah. gonna suck. I love to her waiting in the warm bath and trying to warm her body up for him. She's like so self conscious about being a cold, dead person. Mm-hmm. It's also really cool visually, you know, to be like right there on the water, and she keeps ducking her mouth under and coming back up. Mm-hmm. And I also like that moment where he comes back in with the cigarettes, and then she's gone, and he's just like, "Man, what is happening? <laughs> like, did that all really happen?" Or and then even the music cue there is set up so that you think. Like, oh shit, is something bad about to happen? Did she get kidnapped? Like, what's going on? And then it's like, oh no, she's fine. She's just trying to get warm to kiss him. And then when she does kiss him, I love the scene where it shows, like, it goes into her chest and it shows her heart actually, like, restarting just momentarily. Ugh, and that music, like, the way it builds and builds to that moment, and then it it just kind of cuts right out and they both gasp. That's so good. They, like The music in this is so good. The whole show is good, but this episode especially was really excellent, I thought. Yeah, there's like a little piano thing that happens right after she says, I love you. That's, I think, might be like my favorite musical moment in the whole series so far. Yeah, it plays like these notes that don't go together, and it's almost like like emotional voiceover for the episode where you can see like what's going on inside of shadow what's going inside of her based on the way that those two or three little notes just keep hitting you know every time they pause in the conversation i love that stuff yeah what do you think about the kiss like this made me as soon as i saw it i was like oh this is kind of like true love's kiss because this isn't in the book That he's bringing her back to life, basically, with a kiss. Maybe. Like, with Mrs. Fadil, we had her get her heart ripped out and and weighed. Mm -hmm. But then that doesn't happen to Laura. So, I mean, she doesn't have a physical heart, right? Like, that would have been taken out during the autopsy. But in some spiritual sense, she has a heart. Uh, I don't know if they remove all the organs during a normal autopsy. Oh, I don't know. I just assumed because she has that Y cut. Well, they have to like look at stuff, uh-huh. but I don't think they remove it. I think they just look at it and then sew you back up. 
Yeah. So I don't know. If we be. have any morticians in the audience, <laughs> let us know. Uh, yeah. So, well, either. Yeah, you're right. It, she could have a heart. But either way, she like ha- definitely has a spiritual heart because he didn't rip it out. Yeah. And so I think she went back with that. And so it made me think like she has some kind of essential connection because of that spiritual heart. And is her love wrapped up in that somehow? And does that have something to do with... You know, like the way that she sees the world in black and white and her inability to taste the cigarettes and she's cold all the time. Like, if he reciprocated her love, would she come back to life? And would I hate that if that's the way that it works? (laughs) I think no and yes. No, I think I see it as more related to the way that, like, he is her son and she sees him as this, like, bright beacon of golden light that he is life-giving to her in some way but it's still not enough it's just a temporary reprieve oh okay so okay yeah because he's like shiny and stuff i don't know i i really liked the scene between shadow and laura but i felt like it was hard to say anything really definitive about it because they do kind of get interrupted when shadow is taken away by the police and i think it's sort of hard at this point to say too much about their relationship but i'm excited by how the show is continuing to explore it in a kind of complicated way and i'm really interested to see how it continues to develop when he left do you think like she sees the light go away and she definitely seems sad do you think that she believes that he's like i'm out of here forget you or i think she knew that he was being taken away by the police. I mean, it was... Oh, really? The sirens were pretty loud. Yeah, I oh, think she true. was hiding from yeah. the police. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't think of that, actually. That's pretty obvious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did you think about... So we do get full frontal nudity here with Emily Browning. Even though we're getting full frontal nudity, she like looks grotesque with these scars, her arms all sewn up. The makeup continues to be really impressive and cool. And I didn't find this very sexy at all or her being objectified. What do you think about that? Well, I think also they're husband and wife. So mm-hmm. it would almost be weirder if she wasn't. And she's trying to kind of re-seduce him and like get him to buy into her as a now undead Wife. Yeah. So I think it would have been weird if she hadn't been openly nude around him. And yeah, I guess I'm not of the position that you can like never show a naked woman on TV or that having a naked woman is immediately objectifying or exploitative. Mm-hmm. I think it's to the show's credit that they didn't show her naked at the first possible opportunity. And when they did show her naked, it was meaningful and made sense for the story. Totally. I agree. I felt like we had to talk about it. You know, because we talked about it so much previously. Oh, yeah, that's true. We have been... (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a good point. But yeah, it didn't bother me at all. Yeah, it didn't bother me either. And I actually, I really liked it because I felt like she loves him more than he loves her right now. And so, Uh like you say, she's trying to seduce him. It's not desperate exactly, but like it's a miscalculation on her part to come out of the water with, you know, like the scars and everything and looking like she does... And he's, like, weirded out by it. And I think, too, she's trying to seduce him, like, literally and metaphorically. And I think what he needs right now, particularly with her being dead, is not the physical seduction, but just the metaphorical seduction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the miscalculation. Um, but it makes sense knowing what I know about Laura's character and just how physical 
she is, that that would be her go-to move. And how how much she needs him to love her now. She's not thinking clearly. The way I see Laura's sexuality, sex doesn't necessarily mean love, but sex is a part of love. Like you can have sex without love, but you can't really have love without sex, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think you're right. But now we have to talk about the best thing. Yeah, the best thing. <laughs> well, second best thing after Audrey. Best thing in this episode, uh, Laura and Mad Sweeney. The physical comedy with Pablo Schreiber is just so good. <laughs> I'm not someone who usually likes slapstick and like physical violence as comedy, but somehow anytime Pablo Schreiber is getting beat up on screen, it just makes me so happy. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it's like part of it is his acting and part of it is that his character is just such a dick. You don't really have to feel bad about it, right? <laughs> Yeah, he's excellent at it. Um, I do. I wonder if he did his own stunts. He almost has to. They're so close up on him. But he's getting yeah. slammed into walls and stuff. I love the way that they portray her strength where she just flicks him and then he like sails across the room and crashes through the wall. Oh, yeah. That was such a good moment. <laughs> I also just love the dialogue between the two of them. I love the way he keeps on calling her dead wife. <laughs> Almost like it's an insult or something, but she doesn't seem to really be taking it that way. The confrontation between Laura and Mad Sweeney feels so inevitable in the TV show because she has his coin. It's what's giving her life and power and allowing her to be a character in the story. And he obviously wants it back. He's had shit luck ever since mm-hmm. he gave the coin away to Shadow. So this confrontation feels so inevitable and plot driven but it's not actually even in the book it's crazy (laughs) yeah (laughs) like once you see it you're like how how did it not happen like as soon as i watched this part i was like of course they should meet and it's like it's amazing because they're both magical and they can do all this crazy shit and it's so much fun when I just, I love the way he tries to convince her logically, like, dead people can't own things, so, like, give it back to me. <laughs> the coin is sustaining her for now, but it can't last forever. It adds some tension to the story and the plot because you realize as the viewer that there is no happily ever after for her in Shadow. This goal that she's been going after is something that is actually impossible and will not be able to attain. She can um, she can protect him for some time and she can be a participant in this epic battle. But when it's all over, you know, she she has her own Ragnarok on another level. Like Anubis is going to come for her and she can't stay reanimated forever. Yep. Not with the coin anyway. Maybe she's yeah. going to have to find some kind of alternative. And I love that he points out to her, maybe you want to stop soaking yourself in hot water. And maybe you want to avoid the warm weather. And, st- and clearly, like the look on her face, she has not thought of that at all. She was yeah. just focused on getting Shadow back. And she was like, oh, right. Okay. These are the rules of my life now. And she has to kind of reorient herself. Yeah. And again, there's another really great musical cue here. So when Sweeney is offering her the replacement coins and putting them into the hat the music changes and all of a sudden becomes more playful in a way it's actually the same music from when he did that trick for shadow i guess it's like his theme you know like a musical theme for that character so if you listen to the music 
it kind of plays slowly when he's bargaining with her, when he's trying to convince her that, you know, that's what Last Wills and Testaments are for. It's playing the same song, but it's much, much slower. And so I really like that, that Brian Reitzel has composed specific character themes for these different people, and that when we get their scenes, uh, we get their music along with it. That's pretty cool. And I really like the musical moment. He backs away from her, and we get a piano slide down the scale, which was really playful. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was really good. Yeah, I love that Mad Sweeney's theme is just so goofy kind of like he is (laughs) there's definitely like a contrast right between the way that laura and sweeney are dealing with each other and the way that laura and shadow are dealing with each other she feels like she has total control over the mad sweeney situation and no control over the shadow situation well i think the power dynamic is very different in each situation right Mm -hmm. with mad sweeney she has the coin, so she has all of the power. She has what he wants, and she can just say no. Whereas with Shadow, what she wants is his approval and acceptance. And so in that situation, he has the power, and she has to be much more deferential. And he says no to her the way that she says no to Sweeney. Yeah. I feel like there is a little bit of a the other side of the coin between these two relationships that Laura has in this episode. Shadow has all the power and he says no. And then Laura has all the power and she says no. And I feel like maybe that's saying something about the way that those two deal with power. Certainly Laura is way more selfish than Shadow in general. And she, and you know, there's no reason for her to give up this coin because it means that she would die. But I feel like she really enjoys being this powerful. It's not just about her second chance with Shadow and all of that. It's also about being this, like we said last time, like being this larger than life, super powerful person with all these abilities. Yeah. One other thing I want to mention before we finish the the Lauren Sweeney section is just, I love the way that she pretends to be dead to oh, get yeah. him <laughs> arrested and taken away at the end. It's like such a clever, hilarious <laughs> he just way keeps, to end that confrontation. Keeps screaming, fuck you, dead wife, over and over. Yeah. Or you're an asshole, dead wife. I think that's what he says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's such a good moment, too, because there's really no good reason, like after I watched it again, for the cops to run in right at that exact moment. But it's so perfect comedically where they're dragging him away and it looks like he killed her. And then and then she has that like little smirk at the end (laughs) as she's underwater. It was so good. Yeah, that yeah, that was like the high point of the episode for me, I think. Yeah. And then so then we move to the uh, the precinct with these uh, police officers i was really charmed by uh tracy toms who is the like local detective yeah the cop who's interviewing shadow i thought she was so good she almost kind of stole the episode i really wanted to see more of her so it's a shame that she gets killed at the end yeah like i was really bummed when i saw her dead body i i do wonder if she might come back though it's not totally impossible. I looked her up, and I guess she was in the show Wonderfalls, uh, which was also by Brian Fuller, and he likes to throw people that he worked with before into stuff. Yeah, she's she's super charming, and uh, I really like this take on local cops because usually we get the local cops and they're dumb and they can't get anything 
accomplished and they're, you know, especially when we're doing a con artist story, usually the heroes will outwit the stupid cops. And so I really appreciated how competent she was and uh, how she sees a bigger picture than they do and is able to clue them in on that. Yeah. Well, and she's just so self-aware of that. What it was the phrase she used? Southern fried cops or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like she is genre aware of her own story. Yeah. And she's like, you know, don't mistake who I am and what I know. She was such a surprise and the performance is so good. I just wanted to point it out because it was excellent. But this whole thing with the interview and then especially the introduction of Mr. World got me thinking about the theme of identity, which I think is at the core of this story overall, not just this episode. Um, This episode kind of changes everything because we finally meet our chief antagonist, our big bad, Mr. World. I don't know what you thought of Mr. World. I love the introduction we get with him. I thought it was fantastic. We get to meet Mr. World and we also finally get the definitive story on who Wednesday is. We've been kind of dancing around on the show, Mm -hmm. but Wednesday is Odin, also known as Grimnir, and that the ravens, not crows, that have been that we've been seeing around on the show actually answer to him and have been spying for him. I love that moment where the where the raven like knocks on his door and then he's like, slow down. So what are you saying? And so we see yeah. that he actually talks to the birds and they just they don't say anything literally. They just kind of caw at him and he can understand them somehow. I really liked that. I thought it was cool. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Um, and yeah. also we get this confirmed during the Mad Sweeney scene, right? Because Laura is like, you know, who told you to meet Shadow at the bar and beat him up? So we find out that that whole thing was a setup uh, that Mad Sweeney was provoking Shadow on purpose under the orders of Mr. Wednesday. And he says the old dude, Grimnir. And so that's another name for Odin. And then in this scene, we see the uh, the bomb that says Odin on it. And they're going to kill everyone in North Korea with his name you know, on the thing. So it's going to be all these human sacrifices and everybody's going to be talking about Odin again. And that will give him more power. That's their pitch anyway. Um, so yeah, he's he is Odin, the king of the Norse pantheon and the one that, you know, the beginning of the first episode that they that the Vikings sacrificed to. Are you so you don't want to keep calling them crows on our show? <laughs> Uh, I think we can we can just go ahead and switch to Ravens. Uh, <laughs> just like a little inside baseball to the the listeners. The first time I used the word crow accidentally, and then realized that I couldn't just change to using the word Raven without drawing attention to it. Right. Uh, and we wanted to keep this not necess- not one hundred percent spoiler free, but relatively spoiler free. So we just sort of like went along with that for the past few episodes. But we've gotten all of your letters and tweets and complaints about it. and we, Yeah, we know. We know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this moment where Wednesday quotes the beginning of Madame Life's A Peace in Bloom, which is a poem by William Ernest Henley. I didn't know that when I watched the episode, but I was like, well, that sounds like a real thing that he's saying. So I looked it up. It's a poem about life and death, which I think is interesting because Odin is kind of a god of death. So 
it's kind of relevant to him. And the poem kind of characterizes life as, and this also fits Mr. Wednesday's personality, it characterizes life as kind of a cheap whore that you get to spend some time with and that death is like her enforcer or her pimp who comes to collect the bill and that you might try to scramble for more time with life, but it's never going to work out. He's going to pin you down. He's going to take everything from you. Um, so huh. it seems like a really Mr. Wednesday thing to say. I'm glad that you looked that up because I was wondering where it came from. But, um, you know, being in the middle of traveling and <laughs> somewhat sick since I've come back, I just didn't get around to it. Yeah, it's a it's a cool little detail. I appreciated um, the thoughtfulness that went. I mean, they could have quoted like any kind of weird poem, but I felt like it was actually relevant to his character. So I, I wanted to point it out. I, I really liked it. Cool. We've got Odin here and we've uh, so we definitely know that he's a god. We get Mr. World. So what is Mr. World the god of? I'm trying to figure this out because his character is very different than in the book. And I feel like this is more a creation of the show than it is an adaptation of what's in the book. And he seems like a force of globalization to me. You know, the way that corporations now might start or be based in America and then kind of creep out across the world and everything becomes homogenized and becomes one system or systems inside of systems, like he says. So I kind of see Mr. World and media as two different sides of the same coin. Like media is about output. And Mr. World is about input. Mm -hmm. So media is sort of like spreading messages, getting information out there, changing the way that people think. And Mr. World is about collecting information. And so I see him almost as sort of like a product of the internet, but basically like he sees everything that happens on CCTV he has access to all of the medical records, like anything that's sort of on a computer connected to the internet, he knows. That's a really good take. I like that. And I like, and because they're sort of like very similar, like different sides of the same coin, they're both kind of weirdly dispassionate and opaque mm -hmm. and acted in a very similar way, whereas uh, the technical boy is very different. He's so just like earnest and transparent and rebellious mm -hmm. in the way that like technology doesn't really have any of its own ambition. It just wants to get used and it doesn't really care to what end. Whereas media and world are, have more of their own viewpoint and ambitions. They also feel like his mom and dad to me. Like it, it feels <laughs> very much like a family kind of situation. What? thought about it, it that way but you're so true where you know he is kind of bringing uh the technical boy in front of wednesday and shadow and like apologize to them the way that we talked about you know in a very like fatherly way the way that you would bring your kids to somebody who they insulted and then except you know like this is super dysfunctional 
and wrong because he's like, do you want to beat him up? Like there's clearly like an abusive thing going on. And then media knocks his front teeth out. But she knocks his front teeth out in a like with a kiss, basically, Mm -hmm. which I thought is like, I thought it was really interesting. And it's sort of like the hidden menace behind the friendly, seductive face of the media. Like both media and Mr. World seem super reasonable and friendly in their presentation to Shadow and Wednesday. But they also just killed both of those cops and probably more people who were in the building that we didn't know in order to get there. But that's sort of like all happening behind the scenes. Right. And isn't a part of their presentation. Yeah, and you're right, because when we get the carnage and stuff, you're like, whoa. And I I love the way that Crispin Glover plays Mr. World, where he's like his eyes are rolling around in his head, and there's clearly like he's not totally stable. Uh, I love that instability. You never know quite what's going to happen with those guys. Also, I want to talk a little bit about the world building that we get with media here, because I think it's pretty interesting. So she's appeared as I Love Lucy, and then we get the scene with her as David Bowie, uh, which is really cool and kind of sets the technical boy back on his heels a little bit in his own house, it felt like to me. Yeah, I do love that he gets a taste of his own medicine Yeah, being attacked by the face mask and like oh shit he knows exactly what's coming right he kind of like rolls his eyes and that was what made me think of the parental thing because this is like the mother you know taking the child aside and being like when your father gets home i mean you're in for it mister (laughs) i say it that way because i get this really 1950s kind of vibe off of them off of mr world and media they seem kind of old school to me in some way but media appears as david bowie and then appears uh as i love lucy before and then she appears as marilyn monroe and so i feel like she has to so far you know the rules seem to be that she has to embody these iconic kind of people that are famous inside of the media somehow and I love the detail of that. And Gillian Anderson is like a cosplaying goddess <laughs> in <Yeah>. real life. <laughs> it's it's pretty it's pretty astonishing how well she nails all three of those it's basically cosplay. I mean, she looks yeah. dead on. Yeah. And I love, too, that uh she's inhabiting people of both genders. Mm-hmm. There's this moment where right where she's talking about the way that Marilyn Monroe died and how it could have been like a conspiracy. And she also talks to the technical boy about aliens, you know, waiting in the stars to be discovered because people believed in them. And I feel like both of those things are related. The belief that people have in conspiracy theories kind of manifests the events, whether they objectively happened in a historical context or not. And uh, the same thing for the aliens. The aliens weren't there before, but then people were freaked out by the Orson Welles, you know, radio thing and believed that the aliens were invading. And so now there are aliens waiting to be discovered. You know, I actually really like that because it makes sense that if people can manifest gods with their belief, that they could also manifest other things with their belief, that it's not a deity-specific kind of magic, that human belief itself has some kind of power. And it just happens to be that we spend a lot of that belief 
on deities, but it doesn't have to be a deity. Yeah, that the modern idiom has kind of like recontextualized the things that we believe in. So now people believe in aliens, they believe in conspiracy theories, and they don't believe so much in, you know, the ancient gods or even, you know, modern modern deities at all. Yeah. It's it's huh. uh it's pretty crazy. Her identity therefore like in my mind is kind of cobbled together from these like the things that people believe like all the other gods but also from these actual living people and the history that influenced them and it got me thinking also about the way that mr world talks to shadow about like oh i know who you are i know people and he reels off a list of intimate facts that would be difficult you know for a normal person to know about and i was thinking like is that really who shadow is or are the like he clearly seems to believe that all of that information is shadow but shadow is not a collection of facts you know that's not like what a person is i think that's one of the things that is actually being kind of debated in our culture today is there's that whole thing about like using facebook algorithms to figure out what people are and like targeted ads and the idea that with like, if you have like 200 Facebook likes from a person, you can know more about them than their spouse does or like better predict their behavior than their spouse would be able to, mm-hmm. which is like kind of crazy. But I think that is sort of the perspective that modern corporate America is putting out there that you are just a, a collection of likes and that, you know, I mean, our, we had an presidential election that is was arguably determined by completely manipulative fake media stories right you know and so if that's if people are that easily manipulated then maybe we don't have to be a collection of facts but we can be reduced to that or at least manipulated as if we were that i think that's what mr world believes for sure yeah, yeah. I think it's crazy that all of this was written and started on production before the election. Um, <laughs> right. Because both in terms of like the race stuff and the media manipulation, like all of this is just like so oddly prescient and relevant for 2017. Yep. But it's been brewing there, you know, in the American reality for a while. It was it was ripe for the picking. But yeah, there's definitely fantastic writing going on, and they are clearly thinking really deeply about it. Yeah, so that's like how the way Mr. World sees it, right? Like you're saying that we are, that people are a collection of facts, and that they are ripe for manipulation to his ends, you know, to sustain his pantheon, this new god pantheon. And the reason he doesn't like Wednesday and the reason that these two are colliding, he says to him, you know, you're a rugged individualist and I respect that, but it's outdated. You can't think for yourself. You have to recognize that you're just another kind of product that needs to be slotted into the correct position in the culture. Like you're just another God. Let us market you. You have to like, 
pick which focus group you want to belong to. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think that is part of Shadow's story. Like, this is a metaphor that's blown up really, really large, but in the end, this story is about Shadow. His identity is central, you know, to everything that's going on. I said in the first episode that he is like a slave to Mr. Wednesday and to fate. And this is really what this is about, that Mr. World wants to make everyone in the entire world a slave to the new gods, to be manipulated by the media and by the collection of their information. Like, that seems to be his plan. We know that Shadow has the power through his own individual imagination to change the world if he concentrates hard enough and believes in it enough. And we also get in the prologue, the line that you started the episode with, that human hearts are greater than the gods. So we have the potential for, like, we understand how this threat could be thwarted, but Shadow's identity at this point is not in a position to harness that power and fight back correctly. And I want to point out, too, at this point, the contrast that Wednesday makes between the old god approach and the new god approach that the old gods like yeah they thrived on violence and to some extent the destruction of a subset of people but at least from his perspective they also gave back it was a give and a take Mm. between them and the people who worshipped them whereas with the new gods it seems to be just taking yeah I think I think in the book, Shadow has a thought um, after the New Gods first pitch like this to him that given the choice, he would much rather go to an old, ruined, dusty church than he would to a brand new shiny mall. <laughs> and that's kind of what Mr. World is talking about here, that the world is going to be this manipulated plastic thing where people exist for the convenience of him and Wednesday is pointing out that it used to be a give and a take and a relationship a real relationship where we cared about each other also a shopping mall that's so cute in 1990s I know that's true that's true (laughs) you're right (laughs) I feel like on several podcasts recently I've heard people talking about like the death of malls yeah Um, Oh, actually, it was on a, a Buffering the Vampire Slayer. I love that show. That is such a good podcast. Yeah. The only other thing that I really want to point out here as far as like the identity and moving people's stories along is that I feel like this also includes the technical boy. And we talked a little bit about this, where he's treated like a child and he's humiliated. Uh, I love his apology or non-apology to Wednesday. Uh, or <laughs> his... His yeah, his non-apology to Shadow, and uh, to Wednesday, his his pitch to Wednesday, like technology is evolving, we're all evolving. I really want to help you. It feels so much like the kind of fake mea culpas we get online nowadays, where there'll be an online scandal where somebody is recorded when they thought they weren't recorded, and then they come out and they'll do the whole song and dance of. You know, I really love women. Some of my best friends are women or what, you know, whatever the scandal is about. Uh, And it's so like, 
It's just posturing and not real at all. And he just does not give a shit. And he's like not even trying that hard to pretend that he gives a shit. Like his the words are there, but there's no feeling behind it at all. No, no, he he's not a faker. It shows us that there's factionalism among the new gods that they don't they're not in perfect alignment the way that mr world might otherwise present it i also like the cliches that we get this is emphasized in the book a lot that the new gods are just full of cliches and uh the technical boy is guilty of this like he talks about paradigm shifts he like he has this corporate speak and media talks about a merger like like she just came up with the most fantastic word and the way that mr world responds to it (laughs) Like, they're just the most kind of shallow. Oh, yeah. And the, the like, weaseliness of it all. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when mm-hmm. Wednesday says, like, okay, a truce. And he's like, a truce would imply that we've been fighting. But, like, we're not willing to concede that point. Right. We, yeah. We didn't mean to hang you. Like, this hasn't been about fucking your shit up or anything. <laughs> like, yeah, it's yeah. all fake lies and poorly delivered. Which is good because that's in character. It's um, I don't think it's bad writing or anything. I really, really like it. Oh, yeah. No, I, I thought it was really good. Yeah. And so I feel like his character is also being pushed along. He's in a position now, the technical boy, that is, where, you know, he gets his teeth knocked out by media. He's been humiliated. And I feel like he's not going to turn that anger on Mr. World and media that now he just hates Shadow even more. And if he gets the chance, he's going to rip him apart, uh, which is really good. It turns up the tension and uh, and everything on Shadow. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, he's he's a bully. And that's, you know, how bullies operate, that when they get pushed into a corner by somebody stronger than them, they're going to pick on somebody that they perceive to be weaker, uh, which is good because we need to keep that pressure on Shadow to get him through his arc. I also like the way that race plays into this with his apology to shadow. Like, (laughs) and I think you had some thoughts on this. (laughs) Yeah. And I think in the technical boys apology, there's more commentary about race. We talked a lot about race in our last, the mailbag. Yeah. The mailbag. Thank you. (laughs) We talked a lot about race in our last mailbag episode. Um, And here the technical boy says, I'm sorry for lynching you. Hanging a dark-skinned man. Ugh, it was in very poor taste. We're in a weird, tense place racially in America, and I don't want to add to that hatred. (laughs) And so it's just, it's such a great line because it's like, I think it says so much about race relations in America right now. It's like he lynched a black man. And yet in his apology is just like, well, that wasn't very poor taste. Like, <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's the most privileged thing. Yeah. And then Mr. World responds to that by saying, well, I'm glad we've put that behind us. Right. <laughs> Which is like totally the way that so many white people are responding to like Black Lives Matter and all this stuff is like, well, we apologize for that. Like, why can't you guys just move on? Like. I can't believe you're still complaining about this whole racism thing. Like, get over it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and then, and even before that, when Wednesday is talking to his police interrogator about what's going on, and he refers to Mr. Nancy as coming from the vantage of the bitterly dispossessed, which normally I would take with a grain, but having seen the rope burns around my friend's neck, which I think is sort of a commentary on sort of like the woke white population who is mm-hmm. like... 15, 20 years ago was more 
aren't we done with racism now? But sort of like in the past few years is now becoming aware because of the way that like violence against black people is becoming more covered in the media just based on like cell phone videos and stuff of you know people getting shot by cops i don't know i've in some of the the true crime podcasts that i listen to they've been talking about there's been a couple oj simpson documentaries that have come out recently and so there are a bunch of people in their 30s and 40s who are like yeah i remember during the first oj trial when he was found innocent and black people everywhere were celebrating and like finally like we got one and people were like he's clearly guilty i don't understand why you're happy and now 20 years later they're like okay yeah i understand why you were happy even though he was clearly guilty right yeah 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 it's about just the bitterness of injustice for so long it's just like finally at least we got you know, he had to be super rich and famous like all of you people, but at least we got a verdict in our favor for once. It didn't even matter. Yeah, for once. It doesn't matter matter whether he was guilty or not. Yeah, exactly. I think you have a really good point about Mr. Wednesday kind of being woke because he, um, the way that he or says like, it, he's like, not even, not he's not woke though. He's like, he's like, I guess you have a point, maybe. <laughs> it's like, no, I wouldn't. Well, he's not, I would say he's very recently woke. Yeah, exactly. You know, like normally I would take it with a grain, but having seen the rope burns around my friend's neck, right. he's like, he's. <laughs> Uh, being dragged into wokeness, I guess, somewhat unwillingly. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that out there. Yeah, and that apology from the technical boy feels like it was written by Mr. World to me for him to say. And so I feel like that's why he follows it up with, I'm glad we've put this behind us. Like, this should satisfy... It's like an equation, right? It's like, this should satisfy everyone. I said the technically correct thing. They have no concept of how, you know, actual human society works, which is also like what you're saying about the O.J. Simpson thing is how privileged white America was responding to that whole situation where they just don't have the perspective to understand what it's like to be in that situation. So he can't relate to what it was like for Shadow to go through that at all. And he actually doesn't even really care. He just wants to continue on with his agenda. And it's, you know, kind of the same thing with that situation. We just want law and order. Why won't you people just obey the rules and do what we tell you to? And it's not about fairness or what the actual human experience is like. It doesn't matter. Um, And then I also just want to point out that there is some really great cello music um, when Laura is leaving the morgue and when Shadow is leaving the station since Mm -hmm. we've been talking about music in this episode. (laughs) I love that whole thing with her blowing the door off. That poor guy got got killed. But it's kind of funny. Also, what was he looking at when on the wide shot? I was like, oh, he's like reading a webcomic or something at work. But then when in the close up, you can see he's just done like a Google image search of ponies or something. Right. I have no. (laughs) It was like a bunch of animals. It's just ponies. It's just pictures of ponies. (laughs) Like, I don't know what the hell he's doing there, but. So I guess we'll end our general discussion by talking about the prologue, uh, to be ironic. And um, (laughs) so this prologue was a little different than some of the other ones we've seen. It was animated, Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was actually pretty cool. I'm glad that they did that instead of trying to do it live action. I think that was a good choice. 
I was really surprised by it. Um, yeah, I was really surprised by it too. But then on the second viewing, I was sort of like, okay, yeah, I can see why they did a bunch of things that I think are just easier to do in animation than through live action. Yeah, so this story appears in the book, and it is the oldest story. So I thought it was appropriate for that reason, too. This is supposed to be like some of the very first people to come to America over the Asian land bridge, you know, over Alaska. And Was that 10,000 years ago? Or like 8,000 years ago? In the book, he says 14,000 BC. Okay, yeah. And a lot of times, Neil Gaiman will take whatever archaeology is available, and then he will go beyond it to say like, no, that's actually incorrect. Oh. That it's actually much It older. happened earlier. Yeah. He does that constantly in the book. But- this, uh, yeah, I thought it was really cool that we get Mr. Ibis through almost the whole thing. We only have the actual human beings say two words. Atsula, the main protagonist, has she says the name of her dead child before they bury it at the beginning. And then she says the name of their god, uh, Nanyunini, who's like the uh, idol mammoth. that they made out of the mammoth skull. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because these are kind of proto-Native Americans and they have no voice in this story. But doesn't the Vikings don't really have a voice? Isn't the first prologue also all voiceover? That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. I'm trying to think if they talk at all. I don't think they do now that you say that. So maybe it's just part of the form. Yeah. I mean, so I guess there seems like there's two types. There's sort of like this one and the Viking one that are older and basically all voiceover. And then the more recent ones, um, the Mr. Nancy and the Mrs. Fidel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's we should watch that as a trend. I do like that the voiceover made me realize that this is not actually the story of the humans so much from Mr. Ibis's point of view. I feel like it's more about the forgotten god, Nanyunini. Atsula makes the sacrifice to be allowed you know, to come to America finally. And then the native tribe who's already there comes out with food, like in a truce, and the survivors of the tribe knock it out of his hands, like they reject the truce, because they feel like they paid too much to get there. And then they are killed. And their children are co opted into the religion of the people who are already there. And so they forget their god, and the god dies. And, uh, that would be extremely relevant to people like Mr. Ibis, uh, to Nancy and to Odin, you know, who are trying desperately to survive in the face of that exact situation. So the story is really about the God and not about the people. I'm glad to hear your interpretation of that. Because honestly, I was a little bit confused watching the prologue. I felt like I was following it until the very end mm -hmm. when... um Atsula sacrifices herself to like end the suffering and starvation of her people. And then as soon as the arrows started flying, I was just like, wait, where did that come from? Like what? I didn't really understand. I don't think it's what very was going clear. on. Yeah, I had to yeah. watch it over and over to figure it out. And it I feel like it ties back into the truce of Mr. World, you know, that he's offering out like, hey, just do this thing. Just make this. You mean the merger? The mer yeah, you're right. <laughs> the merger. <laughs> that uh, just merge with us and, and play our game, and then you can survive. And Mr. Wednesday kind of knocks that aside the same way that this tribe knocks the basket of food down and says, no, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to give up who I am to be a part of 
this place. And then in mm-hmm. in the prologue, they get killed for that. And that's kind of the threat, right, that's hanging over Mr. Wednesday. So that's the only way that I kind of unpacked the prologue. Like after I'd seen the episode a couple times and I watched it again, I was like, oh, that's that's what's happening. I was Because I thought it was their own people like knocking the food out of their hand and killing them. And I was like, why are they doing yeah, that? Yeah, that's what I thought too. Okay, but it's other people who, had, who are already there. In the book, it's not that way. They are the original people to come over. But Well, then how are their people already there? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the show is doing it differently, I guess. Oh, okay. Like, but yeah, that's why. That's also why I was confused. I was like, "Wait a minute, are these people native?" But yeah, so it was a little bit confusing. But I think overall, like, it's really well done. I real quick, I want to talk to you about the Tinkerbell hypothesis and morality in this show. According to the Tinkerbell hypothesis, people's belief manifests these gods. Mister World and media roll into the police precinct and like brutally murder everyone so who exactly is responsible for that morally speaking like do you feel like mr world and media are to blame for this or are the people who kind of give them power whether they know it or not responsible Ooh, that's a really good question and not one that i think i have a definitive answer to yeah me neither that's why i wanted you to definitively answer it for me so that i could know what to think (laughs) about it i mean i think within the book we have to treat media and mr world as moral actors so just within this the scope of the story i think they are ultimately responsible mm-hmm. but if you step back and try and look at the metaphor more broadly then i think there you could make it the argument that the people who manifest them are also responsible. I mean, in the same way that like, who's responsible for Trump getting elected, the people who voted for him or Roger Ailes, or the people who originally put Roger Ailes in power? (laughs) Who let that happen? Uh, You could also peel it away from any, you know, specific political moment, and say, like, who's responsible when America drops a bomb on a foreign nation, or, you know, invades a sovereign nation's borders? Is that on the particular administration? Is it on the soldiers who do that? Or is it on the American people who, you know, elected those people to office, even if they did not necessarily vote for whoever? And I think that's kind of what the show is mirroring here, that some violence was committed, people literally died. But who exactly is responsible is a little bit fuzzy because the way that the world building works, Mr. World can only act the way that Mr. World acts because people believe that that's how Mr. World should act. Yeah. I think it's really fuzzy. I appreciate it. I'm not sure if the show is doing it on purpose. And I want to try and keep an eye on the morality of the Tinkerbell hypothesis, maybe as we go forward to see if there's any other information that we can get that gives us a better view of what's going on. So now it's time to highlight one way that we think the show surpassed the book and one way that we think the show failed to live up to the book. So Alan, what was your biggest disappointment with episode five? In the escape scene after Shadow and Wednesday are like getting out of the precinct, there's a weird moment where a chair seems to come to life and attack Shadow. And I feel like this could possibly be a reference to a character from the book And if it is, I really don't like it. 
And if it isn't, I also don't like it because it's weird and <laughs> random and it doesn't work very well. I'm not convinced by this effect. I don't understand what it's trying to do. I, maybe it will pay off at some point. If it's what I think it is, then I, I really hate it. And if it's not, I still don't like it. <laughs> so that's that was mine. What about you? Uh, I thought it was really hard again this week, partly because the show is really only following the book pretty loosely at this point. Mm -hmm. So I picked something that I don't personally feel super strongly about, but I know from Twitter that a lot of book readers really like the character of Sam, who's a a young hitchhiker girl that Shadow picks up after he escapes from his captivity in the book. And I also liked her and enjoyed their interactions. Um, And so I'm just guessing that she's not going to be included in the TV show based on how the whole jail scene has been adapted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess the lack of Sam uh, would be my complaint. A lack of Sam is always the worst. I love Sam. I, th- I think Sam will show up at some point in the show. If you she doesn't so? show up, okay. yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to burn this show down if Sam doesn't show up. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I'm going to put that out there on the internet. Let everybody at Stars know, like, <laughs> Sam better show up. Okay, well, and so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she will. But I was just guessing based on the changes that they've made so far that she won't be in there. Yeah. Um, so what was your biggest improvement? Uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier. I really love putting Laura and Mad Sweeney in the same place at the same time. It's just perfect. You know, with the MacGuffin of the coin and just the way that the whole scene plays out is so great. It's really the best part of the episode, I think. And story-wise, it makes all the sense in the world. And I don't understand why it didn't happen in the book, like we said earlier. What about you? Um, Yeah, I totally agree with your take. And I was just going to say that I like the way that they reimagined the whole sort of jail captivity setup. If they're doing what I think they're doing, um, in the book, it's just Shadow, not Shadow and Wednesday. But I love the way they play Shadow and Wednesday's interrogations off of each other and the contrast that it makes between them. You have Shadow being so stoic and serious and quiet, and Wednesday is being super emotive and goofy and loquacious. <laughs> At first when he's lying, and then later when he's telling the truth in like the most unbelievable way possible. <laughs> um, and all of the other differences that they made that I think improve it in the tv show having cops that we actually like versus uh, mysterious agents that don't have a lot of personality mm-hmm. and the visit with the new gods versus shadow just being rescued by laura so overall i think the way that they reimagined this whole jail thing was really good for sure yeah i agree with that we received some feedback over the last week from our listeners. And we also read a few great articles that we want to share with you guys. We got a tweet from Holly at Holly MVG. Uh, She just started watching the show and listening to our podcast. So thank you very much, Holly. She had to say this about episode one, and she didn't read the book. She said that the show did an amazing job of making me care about Shadow in the first few minutes he was on screen. I was hooked. Uh, Which kind of runs counter to what we said in our first episode and i'm really happy to hear that non-book readers were able to connect with shadow and enjoy the premiere episode um she also said bilquis eating people made me think of jasmine from angel eating people which made me think of the difference between 2017 pay cable and 2003 network tv then implied nudity and a glowing light now actually shoving someone into her vagina (laughs) 
So <laughs> that's that's a good point. I, I haven't watched all of Angel, so I'm not sure what she's talking about. Have you? I did watch all of Angel, but it was about 10 years ago. Okay. She's definitely right, though. Times are a-changing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we also got an email from Jonathan from Maryland about episode three. He pointed out in his email, I just wanted to say, as did a lot of people, we didn't, we totally didn't notice this, but it seems like everybody noticed that the djinn was wearing Salim's suit in episode two. So I wanted to give him credit for that. He says, Mrs. Fadil is nervous at her moment of judgment, which let's face it, all of us would be. And this leads to her quick outburst in which she confesses a few of her sins. She appears to do this as both rationale for the possibility of the scales not giving her favor and as a preemptive way to diffuse the penalties that may result from a negative verdict. This is how I am when I go to the dentist and try to explain why my teeth aren't (laughs) as in good condition as they should be, (laughs) which... Yep, I think we've all been there. Well, so I guess he was sort of saying that in reply to our commentary that Mrs. Fidel has humility and that her admitting her sins was evidence that she sort of like knows how she's flawed. And I guess we put more of a positive spin on that. And it seems like maybe Jonathan is saying like, no, 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 you're giving her too much credit for that. Like, Mm -hmm. she's just panicking in the moment. <laughs> it's a little bit of self-service. Yeah. Yeah. I think it can be both. She can, yeah, she's definitely trying to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. But at the same time, she knows exactly what to call out about herself, the things that she's most guilty about. I also wanted to say, I don't think we've ever pointed this out, that I really appreciate the special effect that they have on the feather because we see that it's always very, very oh, windy. Yeah. And he puts that feather down and you expect it to just blow away and it never does. The, like, the feather dances around and stuff. But it's supposed to be, it's kind of a joke in Egyptian mythology that it's a very heavy feather. Oh. <laughs> I like that detail. So Jonathan continues and he says, also, if I can reach back to comments made in your podcast for episode two, shorter title sequences came about because broadcast networks wanted more time for advertisements. Thankfully, pay cable networks don't have to worry about such things, which is true. Um, I don't I don't think either of us said that. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess we'd been talking about how you don't need long credit sequences with people's faces anymore because you can just look things up on IMDb credit sequences aren't how you find out who's in the show anymore. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a good point. It's probably is more driven by advertising revenue than actually like anything that the viewers need. <laughs> right, right. Um, so our next comment comes from Kelly G at Glazebrook Girl on Twitter, um, who asks, I wonder how you feel about the treatment of non-believers in American Gods. Laura is the first non-believer we meet? Question mark. Also, Laura's connection to Anubis via the casino. Oh, yeah. I couldn't find her tweet about this, but I did see uh, her point out that maybe the reason that Anubis is the one to uh, meet her in the afterlife is because the casino that she worked at for so many years is all about Anubis. Oh, that's funny. And it's like Egyptian themes. Yeah, and there's there's an Anubis statue standing right behind her at the dealer table, and the cards are all, they have Anubis on them. So there's all this stuff of she's kind of keeping his name alive and his image, even if it's not actually venerating him. Maybe it's feeding him a little bit. I mean, she's inadvertently worshipping him in the same way that 
people inadvertently worship media and yep. technology and the new gods. Mm-hmm. I, I like that connection. I like that better than the everything else that we said about why he might yeah. be there, except for the, except for the possibility of like some kind of conspiracy or something. That that seems like a more plausible reason that I think the writers put there in a really subtle way, so subtle that we didn't notice it. Okay, but so going back to Kelly's point about non-believers, mm-hmm. how do you think non-believers are treated? I mean, my first thought is that the show doesn't seem to be trying to say much about them at all. So I think Laura is definitely an unlikable character. Her behavior is bad pretty much all the time. She's rude to people. She has not very many close friends. She sleeps with her best friend's husband. This is all bad behavior, and she doesn't seem to be very sorry about any of her bad behavior. So you could read this as kind of an indictment of a professed atheist, right? Be like, well, you see these atheists, they have no morality. They only care about themselves. I think that is a way that you could read it. I don't know, like you say, I don't think that the show is necessarily saying that. I mean, I guess you kind of have to parse words with the difference between a like professed non-believer and a more passive non-believer, right? Because I don't get the feeling that Robbie, Audrey, or Shadow are particularly religious either. Mm-hmm. They're just maybe not as outspoken about it. Yeah. I think lore is more complicated and there's some mental illness possibly involved, certainly like some depression. And I think that has more to do with the way that she behaves than any particular faith or lack of faith. Yeah, I definitely agree on that. And then we also had a comment on Twitter from Joe Davis, who's at Survey Teens and Tots. That's actually uh, Janita. From- oh, oh my God. Yep, she was in our live tweet. She said this during the live tweet. Okay, yeah. Okay, I didn't recognize her name, but you're totally right. Okay, so she said um, regarding Laura saving Shadow, uh, I think it flips the narrative on lynchings. So many black men were lynched because of interactions with white women, which I think is a really great observation and really interesting. And I hadn't really thought of it that way, but she's completely right. That historically, I mean, if that was not the actual reason, it was certainly the excuse that was often used. Um, we also got an email from my mom <laughs> who listens to the show. Hey, mom. Uh, and she w- was disappointed that we did not talk about the music that was playing when Robbie was getting his blowjob, <laughs> which is a song called The Weight written by Robbie Robertson and performed by the band. And, you know, like Dane Cook sings along with that song poorly. (laughs) Very poorly. (laughs) Yeah. I think some of the, I think this song was picked kind of like I would talked about with the poem earlier because some of its lyrics are on point, but I think they're more on point in a more comedic way. Um, Certainly the first line is more on point thematically. It says, I pulled into Nazareth, was feeling about half past dead. So, you know, this is a scene where they die, and Laura has felt about half past dead for the whole episode. Yeah. And then it says, I just need a place where I can lay my head. Ha ha. Roadhead, yeah. (laughs) And then take a load off, Fanny. You put a load right on me. Okay. We get it. We get it, show. (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, it's just old Luke and Luke's waiting on the judgment day is another of the lyrics from this song. And we do get a judgment day right after this. So I think the song was picked on purpose. It's there's lots of music in the book and this isn't one of the songs. So I think it was specifically chosen for this scene. Is this a song that you love that you sing all the time? Do you know this song really well? Um, I am notoriously bad at understanding lyrics. I basically like if I'm going to sing along with a song, I'm going to get all the lyrics wrong anyway. So Mm -hmm. me too. I don't know the song, but at all. this is—I mean, I'm, I've definitely heard this song before, but mm-hmm. I could not have told you any of the lyrics. I had to look it up. That's why we didn't talk about the music, you guys. We don't know. We're nerds. Yeah. We've, we've been spending our time reading books, not listening to music. So that does it for our feedback. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. Please write in and let us know if we made any mistakes or you have any thoughts about the episode that we didn't talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We also read some articles about uh, episode four that we wanted to share with you guys that we found illuminating. I have one that is called Death is Not the End, American Gods and Get Gone by Alex Brown on Tor.com. She's looking at the show as uh, Laura is a metaphor for depression. And that's kind of the thesis of the argument. And she says, if you suffer from depression like I do, Laura's flatlining probably looks familiar. Depression can be like living in a fog, trapped in a world of emptiness. No pain, no desires, no nothing. Nothing pleasing can penetrate that fog, at least not for long, and the thought of living like that forever is crushing. Suicide becomes less a cry for help and more a means to an end, a way to get that emptiness to stop. Laura didn't really want to die. She just wanted to feel again, which... I feel like is really on point to like, we, we didn't want to get into the mental illness part of the story too much because neither of us have a lot of experience with that. But I feel like this is a good expression of the metaphor that after she dies, she does feel again and she's more balanced emotionally. Yeah, I really like that take on it. And I'm glad that someone who has more experience with mental illness wanted to write about that and talk about their experience with the show. And then the article I picked that I wanted to highlight is actually really old. It's called The Women of American Gods Get to Actually Be People. And it's from April 18th by Jamie, no last name given, on thegeekery.com. The reason why we didn't point this article out earlier is because we wanted to wait until episode four because it's pretty spoiler filled. Although at this point, there's only some very minor spoilers about the character Easter left. So unless you're really obsessed with staying spoiler free, you should be fine to read it. Um, But I thought it was a really good take on how the show treats its female characters and what their approach is for that. One of the quotes from the article is um, actually from Yatide Badaki, who plays Bilquis, who said, One of the great things is that these women, they're not perfect, and they don't fit into one particular box. Each character is deeply flawed in their way that makes them incredibly human, even though we're calling it American Gods. And we see women as three-dimensional characters, and we also see these people that are not afraid to own whatever part of themselves maybe society has said previously that you couldn't. And then another awesome quote um, by Emily Browning, who plays Laura. 
I think people misinterpret this idea when women say, I want to play a strong female character. It doesn't mean I want to kick ass and have a gun. It can mean that, but it just means we want as much variation as dudes have always had. I want to play like a really weak, pathetic character. If it's written well, I consider that to be a strong character. Mm. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, it's it's mostly just interviews with a lot of the, the actresses from the show um, and talking a little bit with the showrunners about how they went about adapting the book, which we've mentioned before has been described as a sausage party. Um, <laughs> and the book really is... Yeah, the book really is about Shadow and Wednesday, and the TV show really is much more of an ensemble where all of these people get to be really important central characters. Yep. Okay, well, that wraps us up for this episode. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L I T E R L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com for news and episode reviews. If you'd like to leave us feedback, if you want to tell us a story however you like or don't like, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. Join us next week for episode number six, A Murder of Gods, and use the hashtag shamblers to live tweet with us on Sunday night. And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. That's the best way for us to find new listeners. Because there's spicy, medium, or chunky. You get a choice, of course, of course. But in the end, you're downloading a podcast. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. <laughs>